you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a, um, much of a scan of the newspapers or the internet to see the kind of the trials and troubles in our culture, whether it's cultural or whether it's social, uh, whether it's political or even global. I mean, sometimes you look at the scene around us and you feel as if it's uh, spiraling out of control, like, like that plane at 10,000 feet that loses a, a wing. It, it just kind of spirals down. I mean, do you not feel that way sometimes when you look at the, the, just the scandals of politics and the social unraveling and the global hotspots? Does this cause you concern? Does it cause you to think that God has lost control? Do you begin to wonder, God, are you faithful to your word? Are you true to your people? You know, what has happened to this creation of yours? You know, when we're looking at Romans, particularly this beginning chapter 11 here, the last chapter of this great section, 9 to 11, uh, we're reminded of what he has done in the first eight chapters. If you remember, he's delivered a people, men and women, who have uh, fallen far from God and opposed God in many ways, and yet God in mercy has saved us, delivered us through Christ by faith. And it doesn't mean that life is simple and easy for us. You read 6 and 7, it's a challenge. But his spirit has been given to us in chapter 8, confirming to us that we're his children and that there is nothing, not life or death or any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's a, that's a hope for us. It's, a, it's an encouragement for us. I mean, that is meant to be a buoy for you when you feel like you're drowning and to hold you afloat and to keep you. But then you get to chapter 9, and that's where the snag kind of comes, because here he's just held up this great, mighty God, and then the question has to be asked, well, what about Israel? If God's so committed to his people, what happened to his people kind of thing? I, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about Israel, and we're going to talk about This is really important. I mean, is it important to you? Absolutely. Because if he's not faithful, let's not worship him. And if he's not faithful, let's not rest in his word. We need to understand what happened to his people. That's why Paul raises up the question, did God reject his people? Did God reject them? Has he turned his back? Has he said, hey, I'm done with you. I'm going to go with this other nation over here. What's, what's happening here? Of course, you see the answer that Paul gives. No, he hasn't given up on his people. Now, to understand this, we've got to recognize that Paul particularly in chapter 9 to 11, he speaks about Israel in two distinctive ways. He speaks about Israel as a, as a nation, an ethnic nation, physical descendants of Abraham. And he also speaks about Israel as a spiritual nation, spiritual descendants of Abraham. And sometimes he uses it in the same section of Scripture. God never promised that he would save each and every physical descendant of Abraham. He never, he never said that. He does promise to save every spiritual descendant of Abraham, true Israel, what Paul calls in chapter 9, the children of promise, those whom he has sovereignly foreknown. He promises to save them. And, and what we're going to see in this passage here is you're going to see kind of light and dark. You're going to see the goodness of God and the severity of God. I, I, I mean, 
I think we've been having a full dose of that in these chapters, but you're going to see it again. In the first six verses, you're going to see that, no, God hasn't rejected his people. He's faithful to his people to save them, and you're going to see that in the first six verses. In verses 7 to 10, you're going to see more of the severity of God, the righteousness of God. You know, in, in, in the first six verses, you have this group called the remnant. The remnant will be saved. It's a part of a whole. And then in 7 to 10, you have the rest, or the remainder. And the remainder meet the justice of God. They meet the righteousness of God. They're the ones that will be hardened. So you see the goodness of God and the severity of God. God is in control. The plan of God that he has is moving forward in the direction and the manner in which he desires. So look with me at the goodness of God in these first six verses. Uh, look with me, because Paul is trying to answer the question, has God rejected Israel? And he's saying no, emphatically no. Now look what Paul, his first proof that God hasn't rejected is himself. He gives a personal testimony, a personal example. If you will look in the second half of verse 1, he says this, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's saying, no, God hasn't rejected his people in mass. Look, I'm an Israelite. I've been born of the tribe of Benjamin, and yet I'm a Christian. I'm following Christ, the Messiah. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, so I'm physically from Abraham, but I'm also a spiritual descendant. I follow Jesus as the Messiah. That's what makes us Christian. And so he's holding himself out. He says, I'm your example that no, God has not rejected all of Israel. He has not rejected them. And what an example Paul is, isn't he? I mean, is Paul the persecutor of the church? The blasphemer? I mean, Paul goes after, in total, the Christian church tries to haul him. It says men, women, and children haul him into jail. He is against the church in full measure, and now he's an apostle for the church. So, I mean, if there's a testimony of God's grace, God's sovereign grace, in calling Paul, he would be it. I'm an Israelite, and yet I'm a worshiper of this Messiah that I once tried to persecute. So Paul's saying, no, God hasn't rejected Israel at all. I'm an example of that. And I think that's what he's driving at. Paul's like, a, he's like the beginning of a remnant, if you will. Because you see in verse 2, notice he says that no, God will not reject his people whom he foreknew. It's the same his people in verse 1, whom he foreknew. Now, you know that word foreknow. We saw it in chapter 8. It doesn't mean to foresee where he can look down the halls of time and see who will love him and believe him. And then God chooses them based upon our response to God. No, it's foreknowledge. So God knew beforehand, God personally sovereignly, electingly, lovingly chose a people for himself. Remember, he is the potter, we are the clay. He does the things that God does. Doesn't come before a company of peers to weigh in whether God is right or wrong. Paul is saying, no, God hasn't rejected his people because he has foreknown them. I'm an example. But then he goes, look in verses 2 to 6, because he speaks about Elijah. This is his second argument he's presenting to us. Elijah, as you know, was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was a prophet in a time of great apostasy. Israel had given themselves in whole measure to worshiping Baal, other gods. He sees himself. He has this, 
this great experience where God brings down fire on Mount Carmel, and, and, and the prophets of Baal are destroyed by his own hand. Uh, but then he gets scared, and he runs off. Uh, he knows that the queen of the king, Jezebel, wants his head. And so you see him at a low point in his ministry, and look at what he says in verse 2. Or I should say verse 3 says, they've, demol they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. You see, you know, Elijah's kind of saying, have you forsaken Israel? Have you forsaken your people? Am I the only one left? Notice what God says to him. You're not the only one left. I have 7,000 others. It doesn't mean I've got 7,000 others kind of tucked away in corners where I'm keeping them safe. I have 7,000 who I am holding in faith, that I have foreknown. You, you see the 7,000 and Elijah is a spiritual Israel within a greater Israel. They're the remnant. It's the same thing. God always moves in a remnant. Think Abraham. Think Isaac. Think Jacob. It's always drawing some of the whole all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And Paul says in verse 5, even now at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God is still moving with a remnant. He, he chose, he hasn't rejected Israel. Think, read the first half a dozen chapters in the book of Acts. I mean, the church is just being flooded with ethnic Jews who are coming to faith in the Messiah. God saving people. God saving a remnant for himself. There's a remnant chosen by grace. I want you to see they're chosen by grace. Not by works. Now, normally we think when something's, you know, contrasted with works, it's faith. Works and faith, but here it's works and grace. Well, works is that human activity, the works that we do, which exercising of faith could be considered a work. He's saying chosen by grace. Grace is divine activity outside of any human involvement. He is choosing a remnant by grace for himself that he has done this entirely of his own good pleasure. This is the goodness of God, drawing a remnant. He gives two examples, Paul and Elijah. So what he's saying in these first six verses is, is simply this. He's saying that God hasn't rejected Israel. I am an example. Elijah and the 7,000 faithful are an example. Even now, Jews are entering, ethnic Jews are entering the church because God is drawing them by grace, not dealing based upon an ancestry or works or ethnicity, but it's based upon grace. He's drawing a people to himself. So if you're here and you have called upon the name of the Lord, you do have faith in Jesus, not just as a helper in life, not just as a kind of a buoy in the midst of storms, but, but, but if you draw upon him as the Lord of life, you know, the, the one who is the Lord, sovereign over all, and yet, and you believe that he's been raised from the dead, which would presume he died for your sins before, if you've got, then you're part of the remnant. You're part of this remnant that you see a thread all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. You're part of the remnant. You're part of the evidence of God's very goodness. Why? Because if you're part of the remnant, you've been saved by grace, sovereign grace. In other words, his love and faithfulness to you is certain because of beforehand he chose you. It's sovereign grace. Remember what grace is. Grace just means favor, unmerited, unwarranted. He's being kind. Sovereign means God initiates. 
So sovereign grace means God is initiating favor to you. He is choosing to extend favor to you by saving you. That's how we have become part of this remnant. I mean, can you imagine if your salvation rested or teetered on all that you had to do or, or had to keep doing and how to keep the plates spinning? Do you know how precarious life would be? Do you know how our lives would be filled with dread for the possibility of failure? I could always just go left at the wrong moment and, and all would be ruined. The fact that you're a remnant chosen by sovereign grace means that your salvation is assured. And this doesn't cause some comfort with sin. It causes just a humility with God. A humility like, why me? The scriptures constantly draw us back to that position. You know, it, it does us, I think it serves us well for us to think about that final day. So, I, you know, picture in your mind the day that you will stand before God. It will be here before you know it, and it will be here sooner than you think. I remember reading this uh, friend gave me this little letter from John Newton, and he writes to this man to encourage him. It's incredible. He says, remember, eternity is quickly approaching. I, I, I felt like I could hear hooves beating and horses coming. I felt like you know, the reality of the quickness of eternity just gripped me in this letter. So envision that day when you stand before him. What are you going to say? What are you going to think first? Are you going to think, I'm here because I'm better or smarter? I made better use of the information I got? Because if you do, then your part of the remnant wasn't by grace. It was by you. Now You're just going to say, thank you. What else do you say? Thank you. So, so being part of the remnant, you have been chosen by sovereign grace. Sovereign, being saved by sovereign grace is far better than being saved by works. It's far better. But then secondly, you're also his children. And being part of the remnant, you are his children. I'm giving you a new identity. I'm reminding you of the identity that you now have. You're not an accountant or a lawyer or a businesswoman or business... You're a child of God. I, I mean, th th that is, you're his people. You're his people. He has possession of us. Normally when we think of his chosen people, we think of the geopolitical nation of Israel in the Middle East. I don't think that's correct. You're his chosen people. God, God moved away from ethnicity in the coming of Christ. And now it's children not born of Abraham physically, but children born of Abraham spiritually. You must be born again to be a child of God, to be his people. That's why, that's why John the Baptist called all the Pharisees to be baptized. Why should they have been baptized? They're already Pharisees. They were circumcised. They're already part of the people of Abraham. Why should they be baptized? Because a new order has come. There's a discontinuity with the coming of Christ. So now we're his children. We're his people now. You're his people. That's why Peter so boldly grabs these Old Testament titles that were once applied to Israel, and in his first letter he writes these words. He says, he has saved us, or excuse me, he says, but you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. He's saying this to Gentiles, the people that the Jews wouldn't even eat with. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
What this means is, at least, at least missionally, is that we don't, we don't take Israel and lift it above other nations, Iran and Iraq and Egypt, and, and we don't lower them down either. Uh, we want to serve all nations. All nations will be represented around the throne of God because his sovereign grace has called them, and it's been now tasked to us to go forth in missions to all those. But not just are you saved by sovereign grace and your children, and your children you're his people, but you're not alone. You're not alone. I mean, let's not make the same mistake Elijah made. You know, sometimes we can, out of our own mouth, we can say, I feel like I'm the only Christian in this community. I feel like I'm the only Christian in this house. I feel like I'm the only Christian at work. And we kind of all of a sudden start thinking, I, I think I'm alone left. I'm the only one left. And, and I just want to remind you that, 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 that there is a marginalization of Christianity due to the secularization of our culture. No doubt about that. But Christianity has never experienced long periods being popular or having the moral majority. Uh, the people of God over redemptive history have always existed in the minority. That's the point of being a remnant. But the remnant is the vanguard. It, it's the group going forth. The, the remnant reminds us of the fullness that comes. It reminds us of the anticipation of victory. We are the vanguard. Our safety has never rested in numbers. It's never rested in being on top of the hill. It has rested in his promise to persevere us. So we can risk. You can risk in missions. You can risk in ministries. Uh, those things that you might be intimidated to do or to extend or, or, or to try to fund or to try to be involved in, move forward in those. I mean, seeking God's counsel and praying about God's wisdom. But we, we bear no ultimate or, or really eternal risk at all. The sovereign one who's called us from darkness will promise to preserve us until he sees us. Do we believe him? Because if we believe him, then we go forward and we don't fear. We don't say, we don't bemoan the culture. The culture is unraveling. Cultures have unraveled before. Is this the unraveling? I don't know. But I do know that he will persevere us, faithful, until the end. And it tells me that I can risk, and you can risk. And the last thing I would say about being a remnant, the blessing, the goodness of God being a remnant, is that you're his voice. <clears throat> you're his voice to the nations right now. The church is. I mean, Paul was in his day, we are in our day. We are the ones that are called to speak to the nature of the gospel to people. We're the vanguard. We go forth and declare his glory to the nations. That's what we do. Don't be discouraged if people are hardened to the gospel. Don't be intimidated if they kind of laugh you off or ignore you. God's sovereign grace can move through your words to the one who's ambivalent, like a mil you know, just like a marshmallow, or to the most antagonistic, like a cinder block. God's sovereign grace is not thwarted by either of those. I was encouraged over the past number of weeks, a couple of men and a, and a woman uh, came up to me and just said that they've been moving in greater measure towards engaging in conversations with people at work and in the community uh, just because of this, because this is what the church does. And I was so encouraged to hear them stepping into taking risk, <clears throat> running the responsibility of rejection, not being discouraged, just realizing the time and just I'm pressing forward. Speaking, 
Let that be your voice. I mean, who in your mind, who comes to your mind right now that you would really love to engage in a conversation with over these things of God that maybe you haven't, maybe you've been a little intimidated, maybe you feel like the time hasn't been right, but could you risk and speak to them? I mean, let it be out of the overflow of your own affections for Christ. Now, don't do it as duty or don't do it because I'm telling you to do it. I mean, do it because you love him. And the joy that you have in him, you just want them to have. You want them to know the forgiveness of sin and the removal of shame. Think about all these blessings three weeks ago that I enumerated for us. So here in the first six verses, he's saying, no, God hasn't rejected his people. Those people whom he foreknew, he hasn't rejected them. No, he saved them. And he, he saved them by sovereign grace, and he's, he's made them his people. He's not left them alone, and he has made them to be his voice to the nations. But what about the rest? If that's the remnant, if that's the part of the whole, what about the rest? And this is where the severity of God now comes to the fore. This is where it gets darker. We never want to, we're going to see this next week about the goodness and the severity. Paul tethers them together. You can't know God unless you know both. You just, it's like saying, well, God's a father. Well, he is a father, but he's more than that. He's more than that. You cannot just, God is good. Yes, he is. And God's righteousness is severe. Yes, it is. They have to be tethered together. You look in 7. Look with me in verse 7. He says, what then? So he's coming back to his question. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. I think he's moving towards now an ethnic Israel here because it's exactly the same verbiage and language as chapter 9, 31, where they sought to obtain it, but they did not. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the elect, being his people, obtained it. That was, they obtained it by faith. Remember, by faith, they, they locked hold of the provision of a Messiah, and they came to God, not with a righteousness of their own, but a righteousness that had been earned by Christ himself. But Israel, he says, failed to obtain it, because they sought a righteousness of their own. They, they tried to establish a righteousness by keeping the law. They saw the law as from God and as good, and they tried to keep the law, but they failed repeatedly. And the history of Israel is just, and the history of other way of Gentiles, whatever law we may live by, we can't keep our own law, let alone God's law. They failed to obtain it. Now, Paul doesn't look surprised here. Paul doesn't see that their failure is a failure of God. It's, it's, nobody's saying to God, well, you, you got a few of them. That was good, God. I'd give you a, maybe a B minus, maybe, maybe a B for effort. Nobody's saying God failed because they failed to obtain it. In fact, what does Paul do? Look in 8, 9, and 10. They're all Old Testament verses. He's saying it's not a failure of God. It's the, that was easy. Let's try that again. That's why people don't want to sit in the front row. You tend to spit on them when you do that. Sorry. It's not a failure. It's the fulfillment of God. The fulfillment. In other words, in the first, in that verse 8, uh, Paul conflates 
the law and the prophets again from Deuteronomy and Isaiah. He conflates them. Look what he says. And God gave them a stupor. Their eyes can't see. Their ears can't hear. God is, is what? What's happening to the rest? It says they were hardened. They were hardened. They weren't chosen by grace. They were hardened. God, God is seen here again, like in chapter 9. God's hardening their hearts. But, but it's more than that. Because look in verse 9. David is referenced from Psalm 69. And, and he, he says this. He says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. This is where it gets confusing. That idea of a table probably refers to, you can think of a table filled with food, kind of a, a picture of bounty. Uh, the, the blessings of God became a, a snare to Israel. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the patriarchs, they had the temple. And they forsook those things and tried to make their own way. But, but think about us. Our blessings can become a snare for us. You know, people, all of a sudden, they get very, very, for example, they may climb up the corporate ladder very fast, and their head begins to swell, and their blessings are not helping them. Or maybe it's money, or maybe it's power. But they get this so fast, and they begin to change. They become entitled. They become like, yeah, I earned this. And that's what was happening to Israel. But it says that God hardened them. But notice what it says at the end of 9, because it says, it says that it was a retribution for them. So it says if God is hardening them, but it says if they're hardening themselves, which is it? But yes. They both. Both are occurring. You, know, you, you see, it's a retribution for them. So it seems to be that this hardening is actually a judicial punishment. God's bringing punishment to bear on their own hardening. Doesn't mean God didn't harden them. They're both operating. But he hardens them. Uh, to, to harden a heart is like the petrifying of a heart. That slow development of a hardness over something so that it becomes impervious. It's not that they were necessarily antagonistic to Christianity or defiant of God. They just failed to understand the incredible love and the grace of God in the gospel. So here in 7 to 10, you have the severity of God. That, that while he... <clears throat> While he is faithful to the remnant whom he foreknew, he exercises righteous judgment on those who have pursued their own way of righteousness, who have rejected the Messiah, and he brings the severity of judgment upon them. This is heavy. This is dark to me. We all have people who have rejected this, and you hear this, this hardening. I hope you hear this as a warning. Not a warning to cause you to fear, necessarily, but at least to cause you to wake up, cause all of us to, to, to a, a keen sense of awareness. And I hope you hear this warning, not like we hear the warnings of the stewardess when she gets her trifold out and shows you the belt buckle and the mask and everything. We don't even listen to them. Listen, if the plane loses a wing, you'll wish you had listened more. But we don't listen to them. They, to us, are white noise as we're getting ourselves situated and opening our books and reading whatever we brought to read. They're white noise to us. Don't let this be white noise. Because if the goodness of God is true, and you're counting on it, the severity of God is equally true. And, and I'll tell you, the, 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 the takeaways that I would have in terms of warning is this, is don't resist the way of grace. Don't resist the way of grace. There are still people 
even within the church, that think, if I just try harder, God will be happy with me. If I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, and if I avoid this, this, and this, then I can feel good about who I am with God. That is not the way of grace. Sometimes I, we just have trouble understanding the nature of grace. Sovereign grace, that is, that you did not do anything to earn a position before God as his child. And while you are called to walk in affections and love and obedience to God, that is not what tethers you to God. It's, a still, it's still the sovereign grace that he chose you. That's what keeps you. This sound, seems so counterintuitive to us. And we just think we need to do something. There is no free lunch, right? And we tell, our, we tell people, there's no free lunch. I mean, you don't get anything like this. It, we have trouble believing if God is so holy, how can he be so casual about forgiveness? But that's the error. He's not casual. We just, but, but there's something in us. We just want to pay for something. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's a Protestant purgatory or something. We just want to pay for something. We've got to bring something to the table to make it a transaction. And, and that's resisting the way of grace. Now, I do think God is holy, and I do think there had to be a payment made. I just don't think you or I could make it. But Jesus had to make it. Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, fully God, fully man, he made the payment. So it wasn't cheap and easy. It was difficult and costly. But he bore the cost. That's what makes grace grace, that he did it. So our affections ought to soar for him. You know, it's kind of like, and I don't know if I'm over-interpreting this passage, but Jesus talks about the two roads. The, run, the one road is kind of wide and flat and it's easy and it leads to destruction. The other road is narrow and it's hard and it leads to life. And I used to think, well, all the hedonists are walking on the wide, easy road and the Christians suffering are on the narrow road. But let me put a different spin on it for you. I, I wonder if the wide road isn't just simply man-made religion. It's intuitive to us to think that we should do these things and God will think we're, we're okay. And we're generally better than the, than the median average and so we're doing all right. I mean, the, the, the common denominator of all religions of the world, except Christianity, is what you do is where you stand with God. I think that's the flat road. I think that's the easy road. It makes sense. It's measurable. I think the hard road is to say, I can do nothing to be saved. I can't do anything about it. I've got to, by faith, get in line behind a crucified Savior. That's not intuitive. I have to trust that this crucified, beaten, battered, bloodied body of Christ is all that is needed and more for me to be saved. That's hard to put all of your badges of merit and all the things that we've done and to just rip them off our chest and say they're worthless to me, they're like dung, I don't need them, I just need him. I think that's the hard road. And if you're here and you've been resisting grace, you'd need to repent. You need to repent of your religion and your own righteousness that you have stood tall and proud with. And you need to ask for mercy. You know, the nature about mercy is it can't be deserved. Otherwise, it's not mercy, right? It, 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 mercy can never be deserved. What makes mercy mercy is that it's given to those who have nothing. That's mercy. And we ask for that. So, so don't resist the way of grace. Secondly, I would say don't 
don't ignore the privileges you have. The privileges of the word and of freedom, of worship, of coming together, of fellowship with people. Don't ignore those privileges. You know, when you hear the words of God, particularly in the gospel, and they're not responded to by faith and repentance or faith and obedience, they, they tend to dull us. You know, when you hear the scriptures week after week, you know, there can be kind of a lull effect. Yeah, I've heard that before. And whenever you hear the word of God, it's either going to draw you or dull you. When you hear the word of God, if you don't respond with faith and obedience, yeah, okay, I heard what he said. Okay, I, I read this or someone reminded me of this. If it's not responded to with faith and obedience, th then, then your attention begins to lessen, your resolve begins to soften, and your affections begin to weaken. We want to respond. We don't want that callousness, that hardening to come over. We've heard it over and over and over again. You know, as a kid, we would, uh, I, I don't see kids doing this anymore, but when I was a kid and school was over, I wasn't in a pair of shoes until school began. I, I mean, I was just barefoot all the time. And, and, and we played outside barefoot. We played, we did everything barefoot. And I remember that in the first two, three weeks of being barefoot, you're running around, the holly leaf or you catch an acorn the wrong way, it could really bring you down. But by the, by the fifth or sixth week, you're, the, the, the sole of your foot is getting hard. You'd be playing baseball in July on the pavement, or you'd be playing touch football. It, it, that hardness came over the foot. Don't let that come over your soul as you hear the gospel, as you hear the word of God to stimulate and to keep your heart, your soul active in affections. When you hear the word of God, we have to respond by faith. I believe that and I'm going to do that. Uh, how, how active is your soul to the word of God? I, I mean, how, how quick are you to respond? How fast are you to move in response to how you're convicted? Whether it's a sermon or maybe you're reading the Bible at home or a friend tells you something they learned, how quick are you to respond to that? Because that will be an indication of the lessening attention, perhaps, that you're given. You know, many of you are studying James in the, um, in the ladies and men's Bible study. And I, I think you're right around that part in James in, in chapter 1, or maybe you've just passed it, regarding the man who hears and does not do. James says, he's a deceived man. What, what's he deceived over? He thinks he knows but he doesn't really, because he's like the man that looks at his face in the mirror and walks away and he forgets what he looks like. There's the hearing and the doing. You have the same kind of warning in Hebrews chapter 3 when he says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to the original confidence, firm to the end. As it's said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So there's that hardness, so fight that. So don't waste, or don't resist the way of grace. Don't waste the privileges you have. And then don't ignore the grace of God. I mean, if you and I really think through this idea of God has chosen me by his sovereign grace, I mean, it, it changes the dynamic of life. Uh, I, was, I was reading 
I'm reading with a friend through um, Knowing God, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, great book. has this line in here, he goes, if we know God as Father, all of our losses and crosses cease to matter. They cease to matter. Now, obviously, in, in the near and the future, they have effect, but ultimately, they cease to matter. You have God. You are known as his people, his children. You have God. Rejoice, exult in him over that. I mean, celebrate him. I mean, think about it. Spin in your mind out a direction of your life where it would have gone without him. Uh, consider his goodness. Think through the nature of the cross. Sit down and take 10 minutes. Turn off everything electronic and just dwell on him. Thanking him for the grace that if you can say, yes, I've called upon the name of the Lord, that, that was by his grace. He wants you. He loves you. Incredible. The severity and the goodness of God tucked into these short little verses. He has not rejected his people, those whom he foreknew. He saved them. But he also is righteous toward those who reject his son. And the righteousness will come about a slow incremental hardening. It's a warning. 